This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umpqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast. Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Available on iTunes. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Hello, and welcome to the Gaming the System edition of Slate Money, your guide 
to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Woohoo! Hello! Hello, and this is very exciting. We do have Slate's Moneybox columnist with us, but Jordan Weissman is off somewhere, which means we have the better Slate Moneybox columnist, Alison Griswold. Hi. <laughs> has written an amazing piece this week, which you should all read about payments. We are going to come to that in just one second. We are also going to talk about LIBOR manipulation. And because we have done such a good job of not talking about zero interest rates for the past 70 episodes or so, we are finally going to talk about interest rates, even though they didn't move this week. But anyway, Ali, I really love Venmo. It's the one way in which I'm a millennial. I feel like paying people money and writing snarky comments and doing it in a semi-public way on an app is kind of cool. And you have a story about Venmo. I'm trying to spoil your fun, Felix. <laughs> why Why are you trying? To, are you a party pooper? Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so do you, in my story, basically, I talk about this way that a lot of people are getting ripped off on Venmo. Um, which doesn't mean it's not safe, and you can still use it. So it is safe, and I can still use it? As long as you use it with friends. Which is what I do. Then you're fine. Okay. Basically. You're basically fine. I, I mean, we're going to talk about how exactly the scams were working, or have been working, in a second. But one thing I don't understand is how how come an app would work for transactions among friends? How often do people transact with their friends? I don't. That doesn't happen to me. You, you, so, so the, I mean, my tra- money transactions are happening with people I'm buying things so, from. So I have a um, a little payments geek inside me, and I love writing about payments and the future of payments and the evolution of payments. And the whole payments architecture in the, this country is hilarious. But the one thing which everyone always does when they introduce a new payments app, and a new payments app is introduced every week pretty much, is they always talk about splitting the fucking check in restaurants. This is like the one use case which everyone always thinks of is splitting the fucking check in restaurants. And if your app is an app for splitting the fucking check in restaurants, then trust me, a million people have got there before you. Um, Venmo is interesting because it's mainly used for buying drugs. <laughs> and the, you're supposed to only buy drugs from your friends. Well, I you, mean, like your drug dealer is a friend, and then if you if you wind up scamming your drug dealer, you're not going to be able to get any more drugs from your drug drug dealer anymore. So you don't scam your drug dealer. Okay, so l- let me get this straight. Venmo, which advertises as transactions between friends, isn't used by the splitting the check at lunch crowd because grown ups just take turns paying for lunch. As far as I know, no, this is for millennials. It is mostly for millennials. Do do millennials not do not take turns paying for lunch? Well, they they do, and then everyone Venmo's them the difference. <laughs> okay. Or it's 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 for roommates for paying you know your share of the yeah rent. you're part of the rent or like you know I need to pay like twenty bucks for the grocery run. We split a cab. Wow. You okay. So I guess uh, like, I guess you know, yeah, old like, people like myself have solved this problem by just. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll pay this time. Yeah, but like, honestly, with, with something like if I I just bought some tickets to go see Florence and the Machine in Los Angeles, and right. those were expensive tickets, and I want my friend to pay me for her tickets. Right. You know. And you don't have checks? Millennials don't no, use checks? checks are really stupid. 
I use checks. I mean, I think you use checks. I do. I I I can't. Re- I don't think I've used a check in. 20 years. Why would anyone use checks? I use checks all the time. <laughs> they work fine. Uh, the USA is the only country in the world which uses checks. You realize this. It's that, that, that doesn't backwards. make them bad. Okay? It, it does. They're <laughs> horrible things. Because the way a check works is you like have to put it in the mail. and I mean, it's so stupid. It just, uh, I, hate, I hate checks. Okay, well, anyway, my main point is that Venmo... Um, Venmo sort of tries to protect itself, if I'm right. Ali, you uh, explain if I'm wrong. Tries to protect itself by saying, oh, well, yeah, you shouldn't trust other people to to give you money when Venmo says they've given you money. You should just trust your friends. Like, explain that to me. So, so like, the fundamental misunderstanding about Venmo is that it's this app, and when people, if you send me money, mm-hmm. then I get this, like, flash on my screen that says... Kathy Venmoed you $20 and there's like a perky green plus sign and it says plus $20. And so to me, it looks like I just got your $20 like instantaneously. But in reality, that's not what's happening. Like your money hasn't instantly appeared in my account. What's happened is that Venmo has floated me $20 that is available for my use until your money actually makes its way to me. Which takes how long? Uh, a day or so. I mean, it depends. In this way, it's not dissimilar from checks. Exactly. And, and the fact is that checks, there is, and this is one of the weird idiosyncrasies of the dreadful U.S. payment system, is that checks never really clear. The checks, you know, um, if you deposit a check into your account, if you have an amazing relationship with your bank, your bank will let you spend that money immediately. If you have a dreadful relationship with your bank, the bank will probably sit on that check for a while, a matter of days before they allow you to, you know, access that money. But there's no, like, hard and fast point at which the bank knows for sure that it's cleared. It's a very weird system. And Venmo is just a little bit like that, that you get the money and everyone trusts everyone and it basically works except for every so often a check bounces. And it's not a check, it's a Venmo. So how does the scam actually work? So what happens is, same thing, you send me $20. Uh, I think I have the $20. In the meantime, like, who knows where you got that $20? Maybe you linked to a fake bank account. Maybe you stole a credit card. Like, there are lots of different ways you could have gotten that money. I try to transfer it out. Venmo tells me, you cashed out, and I think everything's great. And then I give you whatever I just sold to you. And then a day or so later, Venmo says your transaction was reversed. You shouldn't be selling, Kathy, this ticket for $20 because that's against our policies. Tough luck. Now, Venmo is owned by PayPal, and PayPal really is designed for these kind of transactions, right? PayPal has a separate, it has a, a component of it that you can do like very specific merchant transactions on. And so you can get a lot of buyer-seller protections through that. that so, if, so if you are selling, I mean, the, the problem is when people are selling stuff, not when people are buying stuff. They sell stuff and then they get money in their Venmo account and then they realize, oh, whoops, that money is fake. It can also go the other way. It goes when uh, all my cases were people selling things, but it goes the buying. So, Do, uh, let's what, just, can yeah. we just try to understand this one example? So mm-hmm. you're trying to sell me a ticket and I fake send you $20 for it, right? So really what I've done is I have tricked Venmo into thinking I had that $20 to give you. And then when they figure out they're tricked, they take the money away from you. Is that because Venmo, never was any Venmo money doesn't know. Venmo doesn't know that you don't have the money. Well, why don't they check? I mean, like why? Because, because this is the problem, this is with, the problem with the payments and the payment system. Mm-hmm. They, they, it, money is not 
people think of money as a thing which either exists or does not exist. But in fact, it's a horribly complicated batch process thing which happens at the end of every day. And it's actually impossible to know for sure whether that money is there or I not. I see. So Venmo can't check. But mm-hmm. their, their policy is basically like, if there's a problem, you're the one that's screwed, not us. If it's what they put in this like very murky territory of merchant transaction, which is why it's weird, right? Because we're talking about all the things you can do with Venmo and they very much want you to pay your rent on it. Like they did $1.6 billion in transactions in the second quarter. And that's because they're pushing like more people to use it in more different situations and they just want to always expand what you're using Venmo for. Of course they do because they yeah, have more business. That, exactly. It's good for their business. But then you run into this problem of when you encourage people to use it for things that become more risky and they want to draw a line where you just, you really can't draw a line. It would seem really difficult because how do you know, and you made this point in your article, how would you know what a friend is exactly? If it's your roommate's friend, is that your friend? If your roommate's friend's brother, is that your friend? Like what is exactly the line there? I think the line is, is this someone that you know in a way that you can go back to them should the money not appear and say, hey, the money didn't appear. Well, and the really funny thing, and I didn't say this in the story, was one of the emails that Venmo support sent to someone who got ripped off basically said at some point, well, we can't help you, but you should go back to your friends, Eric and Cindy, and ask them to send you the money. And the whole premise of this exchange is that Eric and Cindy aren't this guy's friends, which is why it was a merchant transaction which is why he got defrauded and therefore why he can't get his money. And yet in this email from support, they're saying, oh, yeah, just go go check with your friends. So, I mean, it makes sense, right, that they want to avoid this kind of liability, right? And it also makes sense to me that PayPal, which owns this, PayPal as a larger business does take care of that kind of liability, but is wanting, is trying to grow the part of their business where they don't have to worry about risk as, as largely as possible. Well, it's, I think that PayPal w- would love to grow all of the bits of their business. And I think that if you asked them, they would say, yeah, if you are buying tickets or anything from a stranger, then that's what you should use PayPal for, not Venmo. I think it's quite clear that Venmo is being pushed as a peer-to-peer, um, you know, pay your friends or maybe your drug dealer but not pay someone you don't know and you're never going to see again. The problem is that PayPal's a little afraid to touch Venmo, even though it owns it. Because most people don't know that Venmo is owned by PayPal, so they have a lot of like brand segmentation, right? Millennials think Venmo is really cool and fun and it has emojis. And they think PayPal is kind of old and stodgy and don't really know what it is other than the button you use on a website. And PayPal is invested in so, maintaining that. I have one more question, which is there are a million of these services, payment services. Um, is this a common thing? Is this could, could you say that the same thing would exist with Square Cash or with um, any of the other, Dwalla or any of these other things? Or is, do you have to kind of look at them all on a case-by-case basis? I think they probably would. I tried to talk to a bunch of the other ones, and they were not interested in commenting mostly. Um, But I did, someone at Dwola was explaining that basically, yeah, this is kind of a thing that happens. It's like you say, it goes back to the infrastructure. They don't know what to do about it because everything today is sort of on demand and you want it now. And it's like, it is like a check, but with a check, there's the expectation built in That it takes time. time. And everyone kind of knows that. It's well accepted and it's what we've been taught. 
And the problem is you have all these new payment services that are trying to meet these fundamentally conflicting things of wanting to provide really fast service, but having to work with the outdated infrastructure. The, the solution to this, of course, is to improve the infrastructure. Right. The, yeah. If you are in the UK or in India, even India has instant payments. You can It has an infrastructure where you can send payments instantaneously. America runs on this antiquated thing called ACH, and it just isn't built for that but for that matter in ghana they they do it instantaneously through their cell phones it's a it's you know it's common uh to to transfer f- yeah, funds that well instantaneously. actually yeah okay so the mobile payments are a little bit different because that's actually credit that's a parallel system um so if, um if if you're going from like one safaricom owned phone credit to another safaricom owned phone credit then safaricom owns the you know, entire stack and can transfer that instantaneously. The question is what happens when you want to transfer from like me, I have a Citibank account, you have a Chase account, and we mm. and I want to do one to the other. It's not the same company. Right. Venmo is just an intermediary between people who have all manner of different types of cash. And solving that problem requires the Federal Reserve to get involved. And the Federal Reserve does kind of want to get involved. Well, they have a task force on it. They've had a task force for years. Yeah. It seems to be going nowhere. The banks have been really dragging their feet. So if the banks wanted it to happen, it would happen. But they make money on the float of the when you transfer money from one person to the other. They make money like in between on those days when no one really owns the money. And they want to keep that. I bet they do. Okay. We are sponsored this week by SAP HANA, which helps the world's best businesses rise above complexity and get answers to questions most other companies don't even think to ask. So they can become more agile, increase capacity, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future instead of just reacting to the present, and totally reimagine the way they do business. It's simple. The answer is SAP HANA. Run SAP. Run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. Okay. Scams. Let's hear about them. Okay. It's not just Venmo. It's also LIBOR. Yes. Many banks have spent many hundreds of millions of dollars in fines for manipulating LIBOR. We have talked about LIBOR manipulation in the past, but this week... For reasons I don't entirely understand, two enormous long-form TikTok narrative pieces appeared. One was by Liam Vaughan at the cover story of Business Week. One was by David Enrich in the Wall Street Journal, a five-part piece. Both of them about this guy Tom Hayes, who... I guess almost uniquely among the people who have been convicted of financial scams seems to have been very happy to talk to any journalist who phoned him up. And so has people have been able to put together the story of exactly what happened. And he's a fascinating character. So why was he so happy to talk? He's just a weird... He's... Well, he's diagnosed with... Asperger's. Asperger's. (laughs) He's literally on the spectrum. He's a very kind of literal guy... His wife had to persuade him not to get his mother to cut his hair when he went to court. He was when he was in Tokyo. He you, he still slept under like a superhero duvet because he didn't understand why anyone would want and to sleep. You know, it didn't matter. He has this very. It was functional. Yeah. Um, but what he did was he was very good. You know, like a bunch of people on the spectrum, he was very good at numbers. He was very dispassionate about trading and he made lots of money and he realized there was a way of making more money and this way of making more money was basically 
by fiddling with the underlying. Um, and specifically with the people. So he was trading interest rates, and the rate that he was trading, more than anything else, was LIBOR in its various incarnations, which is technically the rate at which banks lend and borrow money to each other. And the LIBOR rate is set or was set by this institution called the BBA in London, which would just basically phone up the banks and say, how much are you lending or borrowing money to each other, you know, in yen for six months. And they would say 0.93%, and they'd write that down, and they would average it, and that would be the end libel. Just for the nerds out there, the exact way they did it was they collected these numbers, and then they threw out the smallest and the largest, and then they averaged the rest. Which is kind of important because it meant that if you wanted to manipulate the overall answer down, you would have to bribe more than one person. You couldn't just bribe one person because the lowest number would be thrown out. So he actually managed to control quite a few of these numbers. Well, one of the weird things about LIBOR is that everyone always knew it was a fictional number. That once upon a time, money would flow from banks to banks through this mechanism of banks lending money to each other. And they would do it every day at various different terms. And it was an actual thing. But then the financial crisis happened. But even before the financial crisis, it basically stopped being a thing that if banks wanted to lend money to each other, they'd use this thing called tri-party repo instead because it was much safer. And LIBOR just continued on in this kind of Frankenstein way without being based in reality. So then... When banks report their numbers, and by the way, they report their numbers, or they reported their numbers publicly, so everyone could see what they were reporting. Especially during the financial crisis, they had a very strong incentive to report low numbers, because if it was a low number, if they could borrow at a low rate, that meant they were healthy. And no one wanted to report a high number, because that would mean they were unhealthy. But the reality was that just banks weren't lending to each other at all. It was a fictional number. I remember I remember working at D.E. Shaw during this, and I remember being told these numbers are all manipulated all the time. Um, and it was absolutely clear to me that exactly what you just said, that they had every incentive to lie downwards to say, oh, we have a, a small number today because everyone is willing to trade with us. Um, everyone's willing to lend us money. Um, but what I learned from the Business Week article is that there was actually another really good reason to keep the rates down, which was that the traders within the banks actually had bets that were based on the on on the interest rates being low. Well, no, I mean they had uh, they had bets in both directions. So sometimes they would have bets on LIBOR being low. Sometimes they would have bets on LIBOR being high. And when they had bets on LIBOR being high, they would try and manipulate the rate upwards. And when they had bets on rates being low, they would try to manipulate the rate downwards. This is why it is basically impossible to find a victim to this crime. Because sometimes the rates were moved one direction. Sometimes the rates were moved another direction. There was no systematic way in which like a particular victim would lose money. You know, it's not like borrowers would lose money or lenders would lose money. It was just random from day to day. I mean, I was just shocked at how candid everyone was about it in the profile. In both of them. I mean, that goes back to what you were saying about how he just talked to anyone. But the, the exchange is about how he emailed his boss basically saying, hey, look at this great system I worked out. Look how successful it is. And The candor was actually tactical to a 
partial degree because the original investigation came from the United States and he really, really, really didn't want to go to jail in the United States. The only way that he could avoid being extradited from the United, from the UK where he lived, he's English, Tom Hayes, um, he was in the UK. The only way that he could avoid being extradited to the United States was if he was charged with the same crime in the UK. Then he would get tried in the UK rather than in the US. The SFO in the UK, the Serious Fraud Office, didn't really seem particularly interested in charging him. They were perfectly happy to extradite him. So the only way that he could manage to get charged was by going into the SFO office and talking <laughs> to them for 82 hours. Convincing about them. Convincing them that he was a dastardly criminal because that was... And so that's what he did. He talked to them for 82 hours, said, oh, I knew it was wrong. I did a bad thing. And then after they charged him, he's like, not guilty. Right. And not only not guilty, but he's doing the oldest, like, the oldest sort of moral play, like the moral argument that you have with your three-year-old. Um, and you probably continue to have with your 33-year-old, um, which is, hey, everyone was doing it. You know, that's his new thing. And that's why he's like, I'm willing to talk to anyone because I was just doing what everyone else was doing. My boss said it was okay. And he's using this kind of like rule-oriented perspective, probably. And, and the fact is, if you look at the amounts of the fines that dozens of different banks have had to pay for manipulating LIBOR. He's right. Everyone was doing it, although he was probably doing it in a more aggressive and more shameless way. To be clear, he was paying people to say the number he wanted them to say. Correct. It was straight up pay. So it's not like he was taking them out for beer and saying, I really wish it was lower, which is, you know, obviously wrong, but, but not completely obvious. He was pretty aggressive about it, too. Who was it? It was his stepbrother yes that he i think his brother-in-law brother-in-law yeah that he basically pressed multiple times to get in on the scheme with him he would use every connection he could find to try and find the people who were setting libel and that when he he would meet these like very buttoned down british bankers and the first thing out of his mouth would get oh you can help me with libels you know he was but that's also part of the sort of Aspergery thing about him. He was not good at being subtle. You know, he was just he would just come out and say it. And that's one of the reasons that he was so successful. He would just phone people up and come out and say it. And then they go, uh, okay. I mean, as a thought experiment, like, what if he, like, I'm not saying he really didn't think what he was doing was wrong or illegal, but what if he really didn't? Like, if he's like, oh, I keep on saying I'm doing this and people keep on saying, oh, great idea. You're going to make a lot of money doing it. I mean, it's conceivable. Well, it was wrong. You know, the illegal part is interesting. And the exact laws that were broken and whether or not he deserves to go to jail for 14 years, he was he was sentenced to 14 years in the end, is something which people are very much debating, um, partly because it is pretty much a victimless crime and partly because it's... This whole question of manipulating markets is a very, very gray area. You are not only allowed but completely encouraged to try and make trades in anticipation of where things are going to be in the future. But but it is illegal to make trades in anticipation of where things are going to be in the future if you are actually trying to move the markets yourself. And the line between the two is really hard to draw. It is. In any case, I, I, did you mention that they're actually changing the way they collect this, these numbers? How, how is it done now? But, okay, so everyone basically agrees 
that LIBOR is really stupid in this day and age, that banks do not lend each other money in various different currencies at various different terms. And so basing that as the benchmark for every conceivable interest rate product is insane. Including like mortgages in the United States, right? Yes. And yet, because so many trillions of dollars of instruments are based off of LIBOR, it's almost impossible to change it. So they're tweaking things here and there, but there's really no satisfactory way of solving this problem. This is an endemic problem. And even if you don't get extremely um, blatant market manipulation a la Tom Hayes in the future, it's still going to be a really messy and un and suboptimal way of, of setting variable interest rates. We are also sponsored this week by Umpqua. We have a weird relationship with money. It's the, one of the last great taboos. And someone should be talking about this. And that someone is Sujin Pak. She has a new podcast called Open Account, which was created by her and by Umpqua Bank. And they're going to explore this uncomfortable silence around money that we have. It's honest and emotional and funny, and it's going to teach you whole new things about money. So Open Account is now available on iTunes. Subscribe and go deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America. Open Account on iTunes now. But talking of variable interest rates, yes. Daddy, there's a nice segue. Oh, thank Guess you. Guess which interest rate didn't vary this week. <laughs> wow. Because you guys haven't heard enough about interest rates today. Um, Janet Yellen decided not to lift the Fed rate um, on Thursday. Um, and and it's really interesting, the conversation around why she should or shouldn't. Um, and... You know, I'm I'm actually going to argue against most people on the left, including Larry Summers, um, when when most people on the left think that they should not raise rates for a long, long time. The chances are that they're going to raise rates sometime this year. We still there, think there are two more meetings this year. Yeah. They probably won't do it in October. Pe- people are thinking December they'll finally raise rates by just right. a quarter point. So to be clear, it's really close to zero right now, and it's been there since 2008. Let me just describe the model of the economy that that people have in their mind and that economists uh, have in their mind. Namely that you have like the the banks on the very top and you're talking about sort of how money flows through the, the economy. You have the banks on the top and then below the banks you have like businesses and rich people below the businesses and then the middle class and then sort of like the hourly wage earners at the bottom. Uh, the middle class is sort of the biggest group there as you can imagine. And the idea is that if we put money, lots of money flow in the top, it'll somehow trickle down. And like the the banks will lend to businesses, businesses and rich people will start get, making jobs for the middle class and so on. And, and to be clear, like what we're talking about here is interest rates and money flows and interest rates are two different things. And there's this general assumption which is true when rates aren't at zero or true-ish when rates aren't at zero 
the the cheaper you make it to borrow money, the lower the interest rates are, the more people are going to borrow. Right. Exactly. I should have mentioned that connection. So the idea is that it's at zero, for God's sakes, right? It's it's like money is just borrow money. You can pay it back later um, with no extra interest. Start all the businesses right now. Yeah. And the idea is that it's supposed to sort of like cycle. The businesses are supposed to say, hey, we have all this money. We might as well expand and hire people and, and stuff. But there's um, it hasn't really worked out that way since 2008. And the the most important part of it, so there's a chain of events. You're supposed to, the unemployment rate's supposed to come down, and then wages are supposed to go up, and then inflation is supposed to go up after that. And the reason that happens is when people have more money in their pocket, they're supposed to spend more money. And that's supposed to be the sign, that's traditionally the sign, that it's time to raise rates because you don't want inflation to go up too high. We haven't seen that. And the, the most important part of that story we haven't seen is the wages going up. But the unemployment rate has come down. That's right. The unemployment rate has gone down, but wages haven't been going up too much. So the question is, and that's why there's a there's a debate. Some people are saying, hey, unemployment's low enough, raise the rates. But other people are saying, hey, we haven't actually seen any inflation whatsoever, so don't raise the rates. So, yeah. So the Fed has what's known as a dual mandate. Um, it has two jobs, which it has to balance. One is to get what's known as full employment, which they define as roughly 5% unemployment. And the other one is to have in, um, inflation at a certain level, which is basically 2%. And inflation has been well below their target level since time immemorial. And so one of the ways that monetary policy works is that when inflation is below your target level, you keep rates low. And then when inflation starts ticking up or when you're worried that inflation is going to start tick- ticking up, then you raise rates. The problem is that there's a third mandate that the Fed has, which is financial stability. And there are real risks to having rates at zero. And zero interest rates, especially prolonged periods of zero interest rates, create unprecedented financial conditions, which no one really knows how they're going to play out over the long term. What we're talking about here is something called the Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate is a very technical amount of interest that banks get on money, which they have on deposit at the Federal Reserve. Historically, we're talking about $10 billion or so in funds that um, banks have on deposit at the Federal Reserve. Right now, we're talking about $2.5 trillion of money which banks have on deposit at the Federal Reserve. We are in completely uncharted territory. We don't know what the implications of all this are going to be. And there's a strong case to be made to say, let's just get away from this crazy ZERP. ZERP stands for zero interest rate policy, regardless of where interest rates should be. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm with them. And and here's my feeling. That model we described before is broken. And what specifically what's broken is, we don't we don't see businesses raising wages. We do, and the unemployment rate is is low because most people have stopped looking for a lot of people have stopped looking for work. I don't think it's going to come back. In other words, I think the Fed rate is at zero, which is giving the banks just a shitload of money to play with. And you just mentioned that, but it's not actually going to put money into middle class pockets. So what we're really doing is simply just giving more and more and more money to banks for no reason. Well, technically, we're going to give more money to banks if we raise the amount of interest that they get on that $2.6 trillion. So raising rates will give more money to banks in a sense. It will get, it'll make it more expensive to, to borrow money, though. So yes, it'll, but they have $2.6 trillion on deposit at the Fed, which means that yeah. if we raise that money, yeah. they get more. 
But if we wait, it's going to be even worse. Well, a lot of people thought they might have raised the rate before all the instability started coming out of China, right? And that, you know, Janet Yellen at her press conference was careful to say, listen, we don't respond to markets. We don't make rate decisions based on volatility in the markets. But yes, I think that the volatility that we did see in the markets and the news coming out of China did maybe give them pause. It does look like they're still going to raise rates this year. But I think my big picture opinion about all of this, and I wrote this on Fusion, is I basically trust Janet Yellen. I think she's incredibly smart. And if you look at the history of the decisions that she's made, you know, since she was at the White House and she's the most experienced Fed chair that we've ever had, um, she has, she's been right basically all along. She has some really smart people on the board with her, like Nariana Kachalakota and Stan Fisher and Dan Tarullo. This is a bunch of really, really smart people who are thinking about this question of interest rates every single day, really hard. They're using all of the data they can get. And we can second guess them in our podcasting studio when, you know, for half an hour a week. But I just have great confidence that they are better at this stuff than I am. Well, listen, I, I trusted Alan Greenspan. You did? Yeah. That was a big I mistake. did. <laughs> that was a huge mistake. Um, I, I It's not that I distrust the, uh, Jenny Allen. I think she's a great scholar. I just think that she doesn't have control over this. Well, my question is, what do you think it would take for them to not raise rates at all this year? Like, what would have to happen to bar that scenario? We well, ha- I think we'd have to see some real international turmoil. And I think that would work. Or, or worse, jobs reports. Mm-hmm. And... They haven't raised rates in eight years. I mean, you know, they can leave it another few months. It's it's not that big of a deal. And remember that if they do raise rates, it's also not that big of a deal. We're talking about a quarter pointed and we're talking about a world in which everyone who wants to borrow money has now borrowed money. Every corporation has levered up, is sitting on loads of cash. It's not like if you raise interest rates, then suddenly all of these hungry for credit companies are going to go, oh, no, I can't afford that. And suddenly my interest payments are too high. They've already locked in their rates. So the practical effect of raising interest rates on the amount of money that people pay or the amount of money that people borrow is going to be zero, basically. I agree. Okay, enough of interest rates. We will come back perhaps to interest rates in another eight years time when something interesting (laughs) happens. Um, Kathy, do you have a number? I do. It's 44 percent, which is um, what Alibaba stock price is down from its high less than a year ago. You might remember um, Alibaba IPO'd almost exactly a year ago, or maybe a year ago exactly, um, and it, it had a IPO pop, as as uh, as companies tend to do, which is to say it sort of gained quite a bit of money from its, its, its initial price. So it's 29% down from its its starting price, but it's 44% down from its top. And I don't even know whether that's just because China is in trouble or whether you know Chinese consumers are in trouble or whether the actual business is in bad shape, but it's telling. Ali. My number is 100 million. Ooh. Which is the amount that it was announced this week that DDQID had invested in Lyft. Uh, what is DDQID? DDQID is Uber's nemesis in China. They control nice. like 80% of the ride share market. 
if, 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 if you guys haven't list, read Ali's um, amazing Uber articles, I suggest you go right now to Slate. Look her name up, Alison Griswold. Thank you. Uh, so anyway, basically, there was a report last week that it, DDQID had invested in Lyft, but no one really knew how much. And that's interesting because DDQID's investors also include Alibaba and Tencent. So they have a vested interest in keeping Uber down. And it's, it's sort of this dramatic war where Travis Kalanick, Uber CEO, has put his all into we're going to China, we're going to burn as much money as it takes to capture that market. And all of China's internet giants have coalesced around saying, no, you aren't. And their latest strategy is to invest in Lyft, which is Uber's, I guess, main rival in the U.S., though Lyft is absolutely dwarfed by Uber. And so now they said just this week, as part of this $100 million investment, they're going to have this collaboration in which if you are a Lyft user, you go to China, you can use your Lyft app to get a DDQID car and vice versa. So in theory, that could be very bad for Uber, at least in China, if not in the United States. Interesting. My number is 136 euros and 20 cents. Is That's that the cost of 20, something? 20 euro cents. Um, one, and that is an interest payment that was paid by uh, an obscure Dutch utility to Yale University. Um, now, I don't know. Do you know what Scripophily is? Scripophily. Scripophily. No, I don't. Do tell. Sounds like a, a perverted version of Monopoly. Scripophily <laughs> is um, something which is quite popular among bond investors, and it's basically collecting vintage bonds from hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and um, and this is what Yale University did. It bought this lovely old bond, perpetual bond, which was printed on goatskin. Wow. And it pay and it was a thousand guilder bond dating from 1648 and they bought this bond for um, $24,000 as a scripophiliac kind of institution <laughs> and they just sat on it for a bunch of years and then eventually they said to themselves this is a perpetual bond it should actually be paying interest and so they went up to this Dutch utility and they said can we have some interest on our thousand guilder bond from one from 1648 and the utility said it's for real absolutely and they paid them that's an interest payment so of 136 euros that's so Dutch they're so correct it's amazing it's, it's so Yale too <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it was someone at the law school who managed to negotiate this whole thing. I love Yale Law School so much. Okay, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening this week, and thank you very much to Alison Griswold, who is amazing. Uh, do subscribe to Slate Money. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. L write to us. The address is always slatemoney at slate.com. We love your letters. We love your letters. We love Audrey Quinn, who's our amazing producer. We, you know, put up with Andy Bowers, who's the executive producer. And we are part of the Panoply Network, which you can find at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So until next week, it's going to be a good episode. I'm sure it is. It is. All right. We'll see you then on Slate Money.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.